Faye, it feels really nice to be back and recording podcasts again after parental leave. But, you know, even six weeks later, I feel like I have missed a whole world of things in OBGYN. Yeah, me too, especially nine weeks out. But thankfully for us, um, we can refresh our memory with the OBG project. That's right. The OBG project kind of has their great, great summaries in these bullet point formats online. They've got resident exclusive resources, the core curriculum, um, and they've got a new project in the primary care med project. Um, you can check that out as well, which lets you get up to date with all those primary care guidelines that we got to keep up with too. And even better, if you're a resident, remember that you can get OBG first absolutely free. So if you want to figure out how to do that, go ahead and go onto our website, click on the sidebar, and link to the OBG project. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Kriyas. Over, over coffee. coffee. All right. So, Faye, today we're doing kind of a new series, if you will, because there's a huge document that just came out from ACOG, um, Clinical Practice Guideline Number 8, um, which is a new sort of document about labor management, which is really exciting. There are some big changes in it, as well as some things that kind of will reinforce best practice. But you might remember a while back, we did a series on preventing the primary cesarean that I think was pretty well received, but we're actually going to end up kind of revising that with this document now. So this is um, going to be part of the January edition of the Green Journal and ACOG and SMFM. They came out with this revised guideline, clinical practice guideline number eight, and basically shakes some things up a bit. And so we'll review for this first part uh, of the series, we're going to review some of the definitions following this clinical practice guideline number eight. Um, we'll talk about some of the new changes that we um, that we have here. And then we're going to do part two and part three uh, so part two, we're going to um, talk a little bit more about the second stage of labor management, uh, which you know we've also talked about before. And then the last part, part three, we're going to talk about safely limiting interventions in labor and birth, uh, which we've also podcasted on uh, that before as well. Um, so let's go ahead and get started, Nick. So talk to us, talk to me now about some of the definitions that we need to get started. Yeah. So again, we're going to talk about first stage primarily today, but we're going to, again, Get started just with definitions so we're all on the same page. And we're going to go back even to say just labor. What is labor? It's the onset of regular painful uterine contractions that result in cervical dilation, effacement, or both. And labor has traditionally been broken out into stages, the first stage, the second stage, and the third stage. So first stage labor is the time period from whenever this regular painful contraction thing starts until full dilation or 10 centimeters is achieved. The first stage gets further broken down into latent phase, which is characterized by gradual, slow, early cervical change, and active phase, which is a time period of more rapid and predictable cervical change. The second stage then is the time period from when that full dilation 10 centimeters is achieved until delivery of the fetus, which, you know, second stage overall is characterized by the maternal pushing efforts to deliver the baby, right? And then finally, third stage is the time period from when the baby is delivered until delivery of the placenta. 
Now, Faye, I don't think that we talked about this too much in our prior podcasts, um, Mm -hmm. but there actually is some history to go through of how exactly we came up with this idea of three stages of labor. Yeah, I really like talking about the history of uh, labor and delivery. So, you know, in the 1950s, Emanuel Friedman published uh, graphs of cervical dilation of a thousand term patients admitted to the hospital in spontaneous labor and described the period of rapid cervical change that characterizes latent from active first stage, in addition to a deceleration phase near the end of the first stage. So this transition from latent to active in his data was thought to occur at around four centimeters of cervical dilation. Um, And the 95th percentile for active phase dilation was 1.2 centimeters per hour in nulliparous patients and 1.5 centimeters per hour in multiparous patients. Um, Then in 2010, so much more recently, Zhang and their colleagues published updated data using the Consortium for Safe Labor. Almost 63,000 term patients uh, were included uh, at 19 U.S. hospitals with normal perineal outcomes. And the key takeaways was that the transition point from latent to active phase seemed to not actually occur at 4 centimeters, but actually occurred at around 6 centimeters in both nulliparous and multiparous patients, which was later than what Friedman observed. And the rate of active phase cervical dilation was also much slower than what Friedman was observing. So for nulliparous patients, it was about half to 0.7 centimeters per hour. And for multiparous patients, it was more like half to 1.3 centimeters per hour. And since 2010, multiple other studies using large data sets have been published. And they're too numerous to review here, but in short, there seems to be several clinical factors that actually might affect labor progress. And these include things like obesity, hypertension, gestational age, multiple gestation, presence of fetal anomalies, fetal size, and even fetal sex. All right, so we've covered some definitions. We've talked about the history of how we came up with uh, these definitions. So now let's go through this document stage by stage to kind of review the highlights and changes from previous recommendations. So talk to us, Nick, first about that latent phase of first stage. Yeah, so with the latent phase, if we go back to the Friedman curve, they demonstrated a 95th percentile of the latent phase length that ranged from 14 hours in multiparous patients to 20 hours in nulliparous patients. Subsequently, in the Zhang curve and the other curves, the data, for lack of a better word or phrase, was all over the place. Um, It really kind of was not a true good pattern at all. But ACOG kind of throws out in this document a conservative 95th percentile seems to be around 16 hours or so for the latent phase. This really likely has something to do more with when somebody gets admitted to the hospital. And so characterizing the length of the latent phase is difficult to do, right? You know the patients who you admit in quote-unquote early labor who are two centimeters dilated and they stay there for 24 hours before it seems like things get going, and other patients who get admitted at four or five centimeters and then their latent phase is subsequently very, very short, right? We do know, though, that prolonged latent phases are somewhat associated with adverse obstetrical outcomes, but the vast majority of people who have a prolonged latent phase will either, one, stop contracting, so they stop being in labor, or number two, they ultimately do achieve the active phase, particularly when we do things like amniotomy or provide oxytocin augmentation. So kind of coming to our first recommendation from this document is actually a non-recommendation. There is no recommendation for defining a quote-unquote arrest of latent phase or a quote-unquote failed latent phase. As long as maternal and fetal status are appropriate, the latent phase can continue safely. This really isn't changed from prior guidance, but I think in this document really gets spelled out a little bit more. Um, 
Now, Faye, induced labor is a little bit different, I think, than than latent labor, right? Right, exactly. And so as you know, listeners, you probably know there is a definition of failed induction of labor, uh, whereas there's no failed latent phase uh, for spontaneous labor. So induced labor has a much longer potential latent phase. So the guidance is very conservative in order to maximize opportunities to get the patient into active phase. The recommendation currently is that oxytocin should be administered for a minimum of 12 to 18 hours after membrane rupture before deeming induction unsuccessful. So it's really important that we remember that it's not that the Pitocin is going to be on for 12 to 18 hours. It's actually 12 to 18 hours after membrane rupture. And this recommendation is provided otherwise, you know, reassuring maternal and fetal status. Of course, if there is no reassuring fetal status or maternal status, you know, we need to kind of move on and move towards delivery faster. Going beyond 18 hours can be discussed with the patient on an individual basis. And this recommendation is based on studies demonstrating only about 5% of patients remain in latent phase after amniotomy with oxytocin administration after this time period. And this is largely an unchanged recommendation, but the previous obstetrical care consensus mentioned waiting until 24 hours. Um, and we need to acknowledge that this is really based on expert opinion. You know, there's no like randomized controlled trial looking at something like this. So in the context of this CPT, shared decision-making is recommended rather than the overtly recommending a 24-hour period after amniotomy to diagnose a failed induction. That's kind of what we have to say about uh, latent phase, both spontaneous and induced labor. Let's now talk about the active phase of first stage, Nick. Yeah, so to start with this, ACOG definitively puts forth their next recommendation that the active phase of labor is denoted at six centimeters dilation. And again, this is unchanged. It's based on the more conservative Zhang data. Um, but ACOG does acknowledge in this new document that there may be a range of individualized starting points for active phase between four and six centimeters, again, for the individual patient. That six centimeter standard for active phase management will allow as many people as possible to be ruled in for the active phase before you start using more stringent arrest definitions. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Again, overall, the six centimeter notation is not changed from the prior guidance, the obstetric care consensus. Um, and so you should be using six to denote your active phase wherever you are. Now, Faye, there's two ways that we can denote a quote-unquote active phase arrest. Yes. So the first way is if there is no progression in cervical dilation after six centimeters with rupture of membrane despite adequate contractions for four hours, or if there are, is no progression in cervical dilation after six centimeters with rupture of membrane despite inadequate contractions and oxytocin augmentation for six hours. And this is actually, um, you know, unchanged versus the old document. So a protracted active phase can be conservatively defined as less than one centimeter of cervical change in two hours. ACOG does note slow but progressive labor in the first stage should not be an indication for a C-section. Um, and that's because a prospective study of over 300 patients with dysfunctional labor, when provided four additional hours of oxytocin, 50.7% of nulliparous patients and 41.7% of multiparous patients ultimately delivered vaginally. So this would have equated to a cesarean rate of over 35% without the additional time versus just 18% with the additional time. 
Now, since providing these recommendations in 2014 with the original obstetric care consensus, the real-life benefit to C-section rates have been mixed or moderate at best. Um, And there isn't much data at all regarding maternal and neonatal morbidity um, after this uh, initial recommendation in 2014, but the new clinical practice guideline authors describe that this approach will likely balance the risk of prolonged labor with benefits of avoiding C-section in a safe way based on the best data that we have. Okay, so... I think something that we all want an answer to is, of course, we want to know how do we manage an abnormal first stage of labor? Yeah, so I think this is the part of the document, at least when we talk about first stage, that um, really might raise eyebrows or make people say, wow, I've never seen this before. Um, Because really, there's an endorsement in this document of something called active management approach to the first stage of labor. And they describe this as having sort of four components. One is the standard criteria for the diagnosis of arrest of labor, which we've really just reviewed. Um, The next is early amniotomy. Then the use of oxytocin for protracted labor. And then finally, one-on-one nursing care. The studies of active management haven't shown a reduction in cesarean rates, but do point towards lower rates of maternal fever and shorter duration of labor overall. And because there are definite risks known to protracted labor, ACOG endorses active management because of this. So again, not necessarily because it reduces cesarean rates, they don't seem to be different, but because we are reducing protracted labor and potential poor outcomes associated with that, active management is endorsed. Um, Again, we talked about sort of the first part of active management, the standardized criteria for diagnosis of labor arrest. So we just moved through that. Let's go next, Faye, to the discussion surrounding amniotomy. Uh, One of my favorite things here. So ACOG recommends amniotomy for patients undergoing augmentation or induction of labor to reduce the duration of labor. Um, So an AHRQ-based systematic review of amniotomy and spontaneous labor determined that it helps reduce length of labor in oliparous patients without increasing risk for C-section, maternal infection, trauma to the pelvic floor, or postpartum hemorrhage. And there was no difference in rate of cord prolapse either in any of the randomized trials analyzed. So then the question, of course, becomes when should I perform an amniotomy? And this in the literature is broken down into what we call early versus late, where early is defined as amniotomy as soon as feasible. Um, In one RCT, this was within an hour of Foley removal when used for cervical ripening versus late being beyond one hour. So and higher rates of vaginal delivery within 24 hours and shorter labor duration in the early, early group. In another randomized controlled trial, amniotomy was concurrent with oxytocin starting versus four hours after oxytocin starting, and this demonstrated a shorter labor length in oliparous patients and no effect on C-section rates. And then finally, a systematic review of four other randomized controlled trials of induced labor showed that the average labor um, was reduced by about five hours with similar rates of C-section and no increased risk of complications. So ACON concluded that there is high quality evidence to recommend early amniotomy as adjunctive to the labor process, which is really a significantly new recommendation um, for patients who are undergoing an induction of labor. So we have mentioned oxytocin a couple times here, Nick. So what is actually the recommendation for oxytocin use? 
Yeah, so ACOG actually in this document states that they recommend either high-dose or low-dose oxytocin regimens as reasonable to use with active labor management to reduce operative delivery. Um, so similar to amniotomy, in this document, ACOG first discusses the use of early versus late oxytocin augmentation, where early oxytocin use is defined as starting oxytocin once protracted active phase is identified. A few meta-analyses demonstrate modest increases in likelihood of vaginal delivery and modest reduction in cesarean birth. And I don't think that this is necessarily controversial. I think most of us at this point, if we're starting or suspecting a prolonged active phase, would start oxytocin and augmentation as, as early as feasible, right? Probably of more controversy is the use of quote-unquote high-dose versus quote-unquote low-dose protocols. Um, and I've been in institutions that use both of these, so it's kind of interesting as I have migrated around from different places to see the different ways that people use oxytocin. A low-dose protocol generally uses a starting dose of around half to two milliunits per minute and increases by one to two milliunits per minute every 15 to 40 minutes. High-dose protocols, on the other hand, usually start at a dose of 4 milliunits per minute or higher and then increase by 3 to 6 milliunits per minute every 15 to 40 minutes. And kind of I think there's concern out there that a higher-dose protocol might cause more issues with tachycystole or more issues um, with fetal outcomes from no pit to distress, quote unquote. Uh, but there's also concern that low dose protocols too are just not aggressive enough to get people into labor and so protract the labor process longer because you don't achieve the higher dose of oxytocin. And the data kind of bears out that there's not really any improved or worsened outcomes with one approach versus another. So ACOG states that either approach is reasonable. The AHRQ systematic review that Faye mentioned earlier did demonstrate lower C-section rates and no difference in hemorrhage for nulliparous patients who underwent high-dose protocols, so that's worth a consideration potentially. Um, and then finally, too, ACOG also states in this document that a maximum dose of oxytocin has not been established. And that's something that kind of was news to wow. me. Um, yeah. I honestly like was something that I feel like maybe it's just speak or learning of like, I go somewhere and they say, oh yeah, our max dose is this or our max dose is that. Um, but it was interesting to see in this document them say state very clearly that a maximum dose of oxytocin had not been established. Now I'm not out there to say like, you should crank up the pit to a hundred or something like that. I'm not going I'm not endorsing <laughs> that right now, and I want to make that very, very clear in the podcast, but it's just interesting to see that um, we haven't established that maximum dose yet. Um, Faye, the final recommendation in this document has to do with IUPCs. Yes. So ACOG does add a recommendation about using IUPCs in patients with protracted active labor or in those where contractions can't be monitored externally. And they note that those intrauterine pressure catheters are useful tools to help titrate oxytocin while also not causing or increasing adverse events. And so just as a way for us to remember, 200 Montevideo units um, define adequacy when looking at contraction strength in a 10-minute period. And there is some limited evidence that C-section is more likely with lower MVUs, but these cutoffs, patterns of contractions, and definition of adequacy really all need more study. All right, I think that brings us to the end of our first part in this new labor guidance from ACOG. So why don't we go ahead and summarize, Nick? 
Sure. So again, we start off with some definitions. Remember, labor is the onset of regular painful uterine contractions resulting in cervical dilation, effacement, or both. The first stage is the time period from when labor onsets until you achieve full dilation, broken down further into the latent phase, which is gradual, slow, early cervical change, and the active phase, which is the time period of more rapid, predictable cervical change. Subsequently, you have second stage, which is time from complete dilation until fetal delivery. And third stage is the time period of delivery of the fetus until delivery of the placenta. We came up with these definitions uh, first from in the 1950s from Dr. Friedman, where they had published a graph of cervical dilation that basically first defined active phase to occur around four centimeters of dilation. But then in 2010, Zhang published other data, and this showed that that transition point from latent to active phase seemed to be more like six centimeters, and the rate of active phase cervical dilation was much slower than Friedman's observations. And finally, in, since 2010, we've had multiple other studies that show that there are many, many different things that can have a clinical effect on labor progress. In terms of the latent phase of first stage, again, the data that is modern with this really is all over the place, but per ACOG, a conservative 95th percentile for the latent phase seems to be somewhere around 16 hours. Again, this likely has something to do more with when somebody's admitted to the hospital, and so characterizing the length of latent phase is difficult to do. But even in patients who have a prolonged latent phase, it's somewhat associated with adverse obstetrical outcomes, but the vast majority of them will either stop contracting or ultimately achieve active phase. Thus, the first recommendation in this document is that there is no recommendation for defining arrest of latent phase or a failed latent phase. As long as maternal and fetal status are appropriate, the latent phase may continue. Induced labor is different, and there is a definition of failed induction of labor. And this is when Pitocin has been administered for a minimum of 12 to 18 hours after membrane rupture. Um, this recommendation is, again, provided only if there is maternal and fetal status that are both reassuring. Certainly, we can go beyond 18 hours if we are discussing this on an individual basis with the patient, but this recommendation comes from the fact that only about 5% of patients remain in latent phase after amniotomy and oxytocin administration after 18 hours. And so, again, another thing is to acknowledge that all of this is based on expert opinion um, and then... Previously, there was some discussion about waiting until 24 hours. In terms of the active phase of first stage, ACOG definitively puts forth a recommendation that the active phase of labor is denoted at the more conservative six centimeter threshold proposed by the Zhang data. There may be a range of individualized starting points between four and six centimeters, um, but the six centimeter standard allows as many folks as possible to be ruled in for active phase before more stringent arrest definitions are applied. Active phase arrest can be defined either as no progression in cervical dilation after six centimeters with rupture of membranes despite adequate contractions for four hours, or no progression in that cervical dilation after six centimeters with rupture of membranes despite inadequate contractions and oxytocin administration for six hours. Again, versus prior guidance, this is largely unchanged, and they also note in this document that a protracted active phase can be conservatively defined as less than one centimeter of cervical change in two hours. Um, slow but progressive labor in the first stage should not be an indication for cesarean, though since these guidelines were first proposed in 2014 with the original obstetric care consensus, real-life benefit to cesarean rates have been mixed or modest at best. So again, there is more data to be gleaned from here, but this likely balances the risk of prolonged labor with the benefit of avoiding cesarean delivery in a safe way based on the base data we have available. 
So in terms of management of abnormal first stage of labor, this document is new in that it does talk about things like standard criteria for diagnosis of arrest of labor, which we just talked about. It also discusses early amniotomy, for patients undergoing augmentation or induction of labor to reduce the duration of labor. And that's because there have been multiple randomized controlled trials as well as systematic reviews that shows that the average labor, specifically for nulliparous patients, can be reduced by multiple hours um, for those that undergo early um, amniotomy. The next part of active management of the first stage entails oxytocin use, where ACOG recommends either using high-dose or low-dose oxytocin regimens as reasonable in an active labor management strategy. Um, again, early oxytocin use is probably part of your routine already when you're identifying protracted labor and starting oxytocin to help augment. But probably a more controversy is consideration of high-dose versus low-dose protocols. Again, the data really doesn't demonstrate any improved or worsened outcomes with one approach versus the other, so ACOG states either approach is reasonable. ACOG also notes that a maximum dose of oxytocin has yet to be established, which is news to me. ACOG does also recommend using IUPCs, specifically in patients with protracted active labor or in those whose contractions can't be monitored externally. And remember, it's very useful to use IUPCs to help titrate oxytocin because we are trying to achieve the 200 Montevideo units um, in a 10-minute period. All right, I think that brings us to the end of this episode, Nick. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating interview. You can find us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, on X at Creogs Over Coffee 1. And if you want to support the show, go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes on the website, creogsovercoffee.com. And if you want to say hi to us, um, give us some suggestions for new episodes, or you have a correction for us for the show, go ahead and email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.